Although most, uh, as most of you may know, um, this summer marked the 20th year of our ministry here in the great state of Texas. And uh, 20 years ago, when I was wrapping up my ministry at Grace Community Church out in California, preparing to make the transition from being a youth pastor to a, a real, pa- I mean a senior pastor, right? Um, I asked God to give me a, a verse or a passage that I could share with the new flock that he had called me to shepherd that would really summarize my passion for the ministry and could serve as a target that I could shoot for in my new ministry. And he directed my mind to something that Paul wrote in his letter to the church in Colossae. And if you have your Bibles, turn to Colossians chapter 1, verse 25. And here Paul writes, of this church, I was made a minister according to the stewardship from God bestowed on me for your benefit so that I might fully carry out the preaching of the word of God. On my first Sunday at the church I came to pastor, that was my text. And I titled the message, A Pastor's Passion. And I remember the main proposition and the points. It was four dynamics of a, of a, of a, of a, of a pastoral ministry. The sovereignty of a pastor, how God sovereignly places pastors at specific churches, the responsibility of a pastor, that he's a steward um, of the Lord, um, the, the humility of a pastor, that he doesn't do what he does for himself, he does what he does for the people. And then finally, the priority of a pastor, which is to carry out the preaching of the Word of God. Unbeknownst to me, one of the men who helped plant this church was sitting there that morning, and he wrote in the margin of his Bible next to this verse, Ken's bullseye. And Paul's words here in Colossians 1.25 have indeed served me well as a bullseye for the past two decades of ministry. In fact, you may uh, recall whenever I sign something or send a card out or things, I put Colossians 1.25 next to my name just to remind myself of why I do what I do. Well, while I was away this summer reflecting on the past 20 years and thinking ahead of the next 20 years, Lord willing, I found myself searching for a a new verse or passage to summarize my passion as a pastor that that I could set as a, maybe a fresh bullseye for this next season of my life in ministry. And the verse that I landed on was Acts 20, 24. Acts 20, 24. And by the way, while you're turning to that verse, I want to say thank you um, to Chris and Kyle for faithfully preaching the word this summer in my absence, and all I've heard is wonderful things about that very helpful series on the end times, and um, frankly, those guys have done a lot more study in that subject than I have, and so they were the right guys to teach that series and to walk us through that as a church, and I just am so indebted um, to those two men for uh, their faithfulness to the word and to feed the sheep. And um, in fact, they did such a good job, the elders told me that I needed to earn my job back. So here we go. 
seriously. Acts 20, 24, Paul writes, but I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. This could be likened to a ministry manifesto for Paul and for every pastor and as we'll see, for every believer. And I really wrestled with what to title this message and you may have seen the discrepancy, one title in the bulletin, another on the sermon outline sheet. I always have a deadline, I'm under to get it done before the bulletin prints, right? So faithful to the God of grace, staying faithful to Jesus was one I considered, and then I finally just landed simply on a faithful minister. If you ask my wife and Marilyn, they would probably tell you that I agonize way too much over what I title things. But I believe coming up with just the right title is important for a couple reasons. Number one, it forces me to summarize and principalize the main point of a verse or passage. And if I can't simply and clearly do that, it tells me I don't really understand that verse yet. And I need to go back to the drawing board and work a little harder to make sure I get it. Second, I think a good title not only serves as a hook for the sermon and piques interest in the sermon, but it begins to explain and apply the verse or passage even before we turn to it and read it and talk about it. And so a faithful minister, I think, fits because as I've read and meditated on this text over the last few weeks, I've concluded that it's ultimately about faithfulness. Faithfulness. And I told you earlier that during my time away, God gave me a renewed desire to just be faithful. I read a few books this summer. The one that encouraged me and challenged me the most was this one right here, 12 Faithful Men, Portraits of, a courageous, of courageous Endurance in Pastoral Ministry. And it's basically 12 biographies of great men of the past and even uh, in, in our lifetime uh, who have courageously endured uh, all sorts of things and uh, remain faithful to the call on their lives to serve Christ. Let me quote from this book just for a moment. Pastors are an insecure lot. Like all sons of Adam, they easily succumb to the world's pressure to succeed. Faithfulness is the biblical barometer for success in ministry. But the siren song of the world, with its chorus of more, faster, bigger, shinier, shinier, and I would add cooler, often clouds the mind of God's man. And when you visit other churches and you think, you know what, I'm never going to be cool enough to pull that off. I don't even look good in skinny jeans. And I don't know that we'll ever turn all the lights off and have it backlit and make it feel like a concert. That's just not who I am. That's just not who we are. And, but all these people love it and all these people are coming and this is what's popular today. And you have these thoughts and ideas. And, but then you read stories like the life of Jonathan Edwards who faithfully served 
the Lord in a church of maybe 200 people in Northampton, Massachusetts. Jonathan Edwards had a church of 200 people. And after 25 years of faithfully shepherding that flock, they voted to fire him. Simply because he wouldn't let unbelievers take communion. Didn't think that was right. Even though his grandfather thought, hey, this is a good way to be a witness and to bring unbelievers in and we'll let everybody take communion. He said, no, it's wrong. It's, this is for believers only. And they fired him. And he ended up going off into a little Indian um, outpost in, in, in uh, Stockbridge, Mass, and served there faithfully uh, in the later years of his life. And uh, this is what was said about him. Edward's example teaches the powerful lesson that one's legacy is not built upon popularity or lack thereof, but on faithfulness to God and a willingness to be used as God sees fit, whether in fame and fortune or anonymity and sacrifice. In one of the chapters, I wrote in the margin something that I've tried to remind myself of regularly over the years, and that is this, God has not called me to be successful, he's called me to be faithful. And of all the men that was highlighted in this book, men that I've heard of, others that I hadn't heard of before, the one whose life and ministry inspired me the most was none other than the Apostle Paul. And of all the verses mentioned in the chapter on Paul, the one that resonated with my heart the most was this verse, Acts 20, 24. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Here Paul provided a stirring example of a sold-out, steadfast, single-minded servant of Christ who was willing to sacrifice everything for the sake of the gospel. In fact, I think that was Paul's point for saying what he said here. He was about to exhort the elders of the church in Ephesus to remain faithful to the, to the ministry which they had been entrusted with by Jesus himself. And as you know, Paul was not one to tell others to do something he wasn't willing to do himself. Very often he used his own example to inspire others to greater godliness, greater faithfulness. And in this case, he wanted to motivate church leaders to stay the course no matter what. To stay the course, which means to keep going, to finish a grueling race or a difficult task, to persevere to the end I thought if Colossians 1.25 could be titled a pastor's passion, then Acts 20.24 could be titled a pastor's perseverance. Of all the men who Christ called to follow him and serve him as an apostle, no one had to endure more pain or hardship for the cause of Christ than Paul. And here in Acts chapter 20, we find him on the final leg of his third missionary journey. And in the first 16 verses of this chapter, his personal physician, Dr. Luke, you know it's bad when you have to have your own personal physician, right? To kind of put you back together again, to nurse you back to health every time you're beaten up and stoned and left for dead, right? It's good to have a doctor along with you. 
And here Luke is recounting their travels back and forth around the Asian Sea, visiting churches while attempting to make it to Jerusalem before the Feast of Pentecost. Verse 16, for Paul had decided to sail past Ephesus so that he would not have to spend time in Asia, for he was hurrying to be in Jerusalem, if possible, on the day of Pentecost. Verse 17, from Miletus he sent to Ephesus and called to him the elders of the church. And so in order to save time and stay on schedule, Paul invited the Ephesian elders to meet him in Miletus, which was a seaport on the west coast of Asia Minor, about 30 miles or so from Ephesus. And so the leaders of the church in Ephesus quickly responded to his invitation, and they were the blessed recipients of one of the greatest discourses on the subject of church leadership or pastoral ministry that was ever recorded in God's word. Verse 18, and when they had come to him, he said to them, you yourselves know from the first day that I set foot in Asia, how I was with you the whole time, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials which came upon me through the plots of the Jews, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly and from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And now behold, bound in spirit, I am on my way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me. But I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that all of you among whom I went about preaching the kingdom, will no longer see my face. In light of the warnings that Paul had received by the Holy Spirit, he assumed that this was the last time that he would ever see these guys. However, we know that after he was released from his first imprisonment in Rome, he was allowed by God to go back one more time to Ephesus, sadly, to confront some of these very same men who had not remained faithful to God and his word, just as he had warned them later in this passage. Notice verse 28, be on guard for yourselves and for all the flock, among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his blood. I know that after my departure, savage wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock, and from among your own selves, men will arise, speaking perverse things to draw away the disciples after them. And so, as you can see, the predominant theme in this famous farewell address is to be faithful, which I think is expressed and exemplified most clearly in verse 24. And here we have, for the sake of an outline and taking notes, three marks of a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. Three marks of a faithful servant of Jesus Christ. First of all, Paul was sold out. Paul was sold out. To be sold out means that you are totally committed or devoted to something, invested and engaged in a cause. It means you're willing to go anywhere, do anything, give up everything to achieve a goal. I think that's what Paul was expressing in this first phrase when he said, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself. 
The NIV says, I consider my life worth nothing to me. My life is worth nothing to me. It's not even worth mentioning. If you have a King James or a New King James, you see an additional phrase there, but none of these things move me. That added line is based on certain Greek manuscripts that have been uh, used over the, in, in history that have an expanded version of some verses, some passages, and I would just say whether or not it was in the original manuscript that Luke wrote under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it, I think it does accurately fit the context and captures Paul's heart at this juncture in his life. Because he just got done saying how he was bound in spirit on his way to Jerusalem, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit solemnly testifies to me in every city, saying that bonds and afflictions await me, but none of these things move me. Paul didn't know specifically what was going to happen to him, or when it was going to happen to him, or how it was going to happen to him, but he did know that a storm was coming and that he was heading for rough waters. And it wasn't until he arrived in Jerusalem that he was told by the prophet Agabus that he would be arrested by the Jews, turned over to the Gentiles, and tried and eventually executed. I think this is a good reminder, <coughs> excuse me, for all of us that God rarely reveals when or where trials and tribulations will come into our lives or how, how long they will last or how severe they will be. And by the way, that's grace. <laughs> that's mercy. If we were to have to see what lie ahead in our lives, none of us would have the fortitude to forge ahead. The old commentator Matthew Poole, one of Spurgeon's favorite commentators that he would read to prepare his sermons said this, it is good for us to be kept in the dark concerning future events. That way we may be always waiting on God and waiting for him. When we go abroad, we know not the things that shall befall us, nor what a day or a night or an hour may bring forth, and therefore must we must refer ourselves to God. Let him do with us as seemeth good in his eyes and study to stand complete in his whole will. Paul was wholly submitted to God's will for his life. I guess another way of saying that is that he had abandoned himself to God. What does it mean to abandon yourself? It means to, to fully surrender yourself to God, to let go of the steering wheel of your life, if you will, and let God take complete control and to drive your life wherever he wants it to go, in whatever direction he wants it to go. I'm sure most of you have heard of Oswald Chambers, who is best known for that classic devotional, My Utmost for His Highest. Well, his biographer chose to title his biography, Abandon to God. In fact, Chambers himself defined or described Abandon to God in these terms, as being totally unrestrained and willing to risk everything. And by the way, this is a, 
place that all of us must get to in our walk with God. This isn't just for apostles. This isn't just for pastors, missionaries, evangelists. This is for every Christian. Why? Because this is where God wants all of us to be in our lives. In fact, he's the one who helps us get there by bringing circumstances into our lives or putting us in situations where we have no clue what we should do or where we should go so we have no other choice but to rest in him and trust him alone. Some of you may be standing at a scary crossroad in your life right now wondering what the future holds for you regarding your marriage or your children or your health, your finances. Well, you have a choice to make. You can play it safe, you can take the easy road, or you can, like Paul, step out in faith and say, Lord, my life is in your hands. I'm willing for you to do whatever you choose with my life so that I will bring you the most honor and glory possible. Whatever it takes to glorify and honor you. I don't care what happens to me. doesn't matter what people think about me, how they feel about me, what they say about me, what they do to me. That's the perspective that, that Paul had about life. He was ready and willing to surrender everything, including his life, for the cause of Christ. In fact, he considered himself already dead. That's probably a a good way to live, right? If you're already dead, then you're not concerned about dying because you already did. Romans 8.36, Paul says, for your sake we are being put to death all day long. We are considered as sheep to be slaughtered. Romans 14, verses 7 and 8, For not one of us lives for himself, and not one dies for himself. For if we live, we live for the Lord. Or if we die, we die for the Lord. Therefore, whether we live or die, we are the Lord's. Galatians 2.20, I am crucified with Christ. And then, of course, Philippians chapter 1, verse 19, For I know that this will turn out from my deliverance through your prayers and the provision of the Spirit of Jesus Christ according to my earnest expectation and hope that I will not be put to shame in anything but that with all boldness Christ will even now as always be exalted in my body whether by life or by death for to me to live is Christ and to die is what? Gain. And then Philippians 2.17 even if I'm being poured out as a drink offering upon the sacrifice and service of your faith I rejoice and share my joy with you all. And so despite all that he had already suffered, along with all that he was about to suffer, Paul courageously persevered in the ministry to which God had called him. He was unmoved, unfazed, undeterred by what might happen to him. And he was resolute in his commitment to forge ahead no matter how things turned out. It made no difference to Paul whether he lived or died. What, what mattered most to him is that God would be pleased and glorified, and if that meant giving up his own life, then so be it. I read a story this week about a 
young pioneer missionary named James Calvert who went to reach the cannibals in the Fiji Islands. And uh, he shared Paul's passion for the gospel. And of course, this is back in the 1800s when this happened. And en route to the Fiji Islands, the ship captain tried to persuade him not to go. And finally, in desperation, he cried out. He said, you'll lose your life and the lives of those with you if you go among such savages. And Calvert calmly replied, we died before we came. We died before we came. And I think that's the mark of any faithful ministry. It's, it's, it's marked by self-sacrifice. It requires a dying to self. I was struck by a couple other quotes in this book, 12 Faithful Men. One man said this, church leadership comes with a cross and invites all pastors to be impaled on it. Another quote, someone has aptly called the vocation of ministry a death sentence, meaning it is death to self-will and embrace of God's will. When a man leaves safe harbor and guides his vessel into the tumultuous sea of pastoral ministry, he never knows which direction the waves may take him, but he can rest assured that God knows and that truth liberates him to preach the gospel of grace with abandon. Well, lest you sit there thinking that all this talk of self-sacrifice and, and death only applies to those God has called to be pastors, let me remind you that this was Christ's call to everyone who wanted to follow him. In other words, this isn't just preaching to myself this morning. It's preaching to all of us. Because Jesus said in Luke 9, 23, if anyone wishes to come after me, he must, what? Deny himself and take up his cross daily and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake, he is the one who will save it. He went on in Luke 14, verse 26 to say this, Jesus' own words, if anyone comes to me and does not hate his, father, his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own, what? Life. He cannot be my disciple. So it really comes down to self-preservation or self-sacrifice. You've got to choose how you're going to live. It's one or the other. Now we may never have to literally die for the cause of Christ, but nevertheless, we must be prepared for that possibility. And that's what it means to be sold out. And a faithful minister of Jesus Christ is sold out. Secondly, a faithful minister of Jesus Christ is steadfast. Is steadfast. Notice what Paul says next. I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Again, the NIV adds, complete the task. Some manuscripts also have with joy, all of which, again, fit the context and are um, expanding on the, the meaning, the, the heart of Paul here. 
But that little phrase there, so that I may finish my course. This was one of Paul's favorite metaphors that he would apply to running, uh, apply to life and ministry, right? Running a race. Uh, 1 Corinthians 9, 24, Hebrews chapter 12, 1. We, we know this is just a, a fabulous metaphor or analogy of the Christian life and particularly ministry. In fact, earlier in the book of Acts, Paul referred to the life and ministry of John the Baptist as completing his course. He said when John the Baptist was completing his course, that's Acts 13, 25. And so all of us have a course to complete. We all have a race to run. And it's not just how we start that matters, it's how we finish. Anyone can start well, right? Finishing well is the hard part. And, and based on statistics, the sad reality is that more falter than actually finish. And you may be thinking, well, that's not going to be me. I, I'm off to a great start. And that may be true. You're sold out to Christ and you have this burning desire to be used by the Lord to make an impact on other people around you and you're committed to faithfully serving him for the rest of your life and you're looking forward to that day when you stand before him and you hear him say, well done, my good and faithful service. That's wonderful, but we also need to be keenly aware of the frightening fact that countless others who started off with the same or even greater zeal and dedication have since veered off the track and become spiritual casualties. And more than just scaring us, that should serve to stimulate us to, to make it to the finish line ourselves. Which is not easy, but it's not impossible. And Paul proved that. He says, so that I may finish my course and the ministry which I receive from the Lord Jesus. Paul viewed the ministry as a sacred stewardship that had been entrusted to him by Jesus Christ himself. 1 Timothy 1.12, he said, I thank Jesus, our Lord, who considered me faithful, putting me into his service. In other words, this wasn't my decision, this was God's decision for my life. He put me into service. And Paul knew the most important quality of a steward is that he be found what? Faithful or trustworthy, 1 Corinthians 4.2. He also knew that if he had received the ministry from Jesus, it had to be done in the power of Jesus and for the glory of Jesus. Colossians 1, 28 and 29, we proclaim him, admonishing every man and teaching every man with all wisdom so that we may present every man complete in Christ. It's about Christ. We proclaim Christ, not ourselves. And if you're proclaiming yourself, you got no business being in the ministry. He says, for this purpose also I labor, striving according to his power, which mightily works within me. What an honor and privilege to have been entrusted with the gospel by the Lord Jesus himself. As I sat down to begin reading this book, normally it takes, you know, a few pages or maybe a few chapters to get into something. But 
not this book. In fact, I was struck in the forward like a lightning bolt. And as it's been said before, it's not books that change your life. Sentences, sentences change your life. And I was reading along in this foreword by Ray Ortland, and this is what he said, the privilege of ministry is Jesus, serving Jesus, standing for Jesus, representing Jesus, laying down our lives for Jesus, and through it all, knowing Jesus more deeply. And then he shared what his dad, who you may remember Ray Ortland, his famous pastor who's now with the Lord, he said his dad was the best pastor he ever knew, and he said on his dying day, this is what he told him, he said, son, ministry isn't everything Jesus is. And the fact that that struck me so, that's so profound was honestly embarrassing and convicting. <laughs> Why is that so profound? Why is that so striking? Because I think for all of us, it's easy to let the ministry become everything. We're so focused on all the things that need to be done and all the things we are called to do and, and, and there's so many, and we forget it's about Jesus. Jesus is everything. And so, after reading that forward, I just kind of put the book down. I was like, wow. I need to repent for letting the ministry be everything and asking God that Jesus would become everything. And I was taking a walk with my wife after that, and we agreed that we needed to have this put somewhere on a sign in some calligraphy, somewhere where we don't forget this. Ministry isn't everything Jesus is. Just wherever we turn, we're seeing that to remind ourselves of how important it is to be steadfastly pursuing Christ. It's his ministry, not ours. So a faithful minister of Christ is steadfast. He's sold out. And thirdly, he's single-minded. He's single-minded. Now, we know what that means, right? To be single-minded is to have only one aim or to concentrate on one purpose alone. And so, as we see in this next phrase, the singular focus of every pastor's life and ministry, and I would say every believer's life and ministry, must be proclaiming the gospel. Notice he says, I do not consider my life of any account as dear to myself so that I may finish my course in the ministry which I see from the Lord Jesus to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. What is this ministry that I've received from the Lord Jesus? That is specifically, solely, most importantly, to testify solemnly of the gospel of the grace of God. Paul knew his main duty was to faithfully preach the gospel. Period. The good news that God in his great love, grace, and mercy has made a way for sinful people like us to be saved from death and hell through the life, death, and resurrection of his son Jesus. And everyone who is willing to admit that, that they are rebellious sinners on their way to hell and they're willing to change their direction, that's what it means to repent 
and commit to follow and obey Jesus Christ as our Lord and Savior. That's what it means to believe. To believe and obey are synonymous terms in the, in the scriptures. They will have their sins forgiven and they can have the hope of spending eternity with God in heaven. That's the gospel. That's the gospel Paul preached, verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you publicly from house to house, solemnly testifying to both Jews and Greeks of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. That was the summary of his preaching ministry, was the gospel, repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus Christ. And he was able to say in verse 26, And 27, therefore I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all men, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole purpose of God. In other words, if you go to hell, it's not my fault. Because I was faithful to warn you of the consequences if you didn't repent, and I put before you the glorious plan of salvation that puts on display the grace of God. Of God. What a great way to refer to the gospel. Nowhere else in his writings does Paul describe the gospel in these terms. I can't think of a better way to refer to the gospel that we get to savor every Sunday with fellow believers and we get to share all week with unbelievers the gospel of the grace of God. In other words, when we gather together as those who have been redeemed and are being sanctified by the grace of God in Christ, we should recognize that none of us deserve to be here. Did that thought go through your mind this morning? Hey, I don't deserve to be here. How did I get part of this? And I didn't earn the right to be here. The only reason I'm here is because God in his sovereign grace chose me for salvation which should totally just humble us and amaze us and fill us with a sense of awe and wonder that makes us want to sing and pray and and, and fellowship and listen to the word of God together with great gratitude and gladness. The gospel of the grace of God. I listened to a sermon this this summer and and, uh, I appreciated the illustration that one of these pastors used and he, he likened going to church to going through a gospel car wash. I don't know if you go through the car wash, right? But he talked about how we get hit with the gospel in all sorts of, uh, of ways when we come to church. It's like we, we bring our cars in to church, our lives into church, and the opening song is like that initial gush of water that prepares us to be washed by the water of the word and the scripture reading and prayer acts like the soap that lathers us up and the songs and the sermon act like the brushes that scrub us from top to bottom and, and all sides and the closing song, when we have it, right, it rinses us. We, we usually send you out unrinsed, right? Uh, we, 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 the, the, that song rinses us. The fellowship afterwards dries us and polishes us and buffs us and, and sends us out into the world ready to shine forth the beauty and the power of the gospel. And I thought to myself, after hearing that illustration, how could a group of people who spend a couple of hours on Sunday, every Sunday, by the way, 
sincerely and passionately boasting in the gospel and rejoicing in the fact that we are all spiritual orphans who were adopted by a gracious, loving Father to live with Him forever in His heavenly mansion, if you will, not have that spill over into our daily lives during the week and compel us to to boast in the gospel in front of unbelievers and introduce other lost orphans to our gracious Father who wants to make him, them his children too. And if you're like me, it's just, you just get distracted. We're busy. We're focused on doing what we got to do, washing our clothes and fixing our houses and doing our chores and we got degrees to earn and careers to pursue and vacations to go on. We got our to-do list and we forget that the primary focus of our lives as followers of Christ should be to proclaim the gospel in every sphere and every season of our life, whether you're young or old, wherever you're at and you find yourself in your season of life to be an aroma of life and death to a world full of helplessly lost Sinners who are hopelessly bound for hell. So a faithful minister of Jesus Christ is single-minded. Well, this, I don't think, is just an inspiring verse for me as a pastor... I think this could be the life verse of every Christian who desires to live a a faithful life. As you know, by God's grace, Paul stayed faithful to the end. And from an underground dungeon in Rome, he wrote these triumphant words to his young disciple Timothy. This is 2 Timothy chapter 4, verse Six, for I am already poured out as a drink offering. The time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have what? Finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future, there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, not only to pastors, not only to apostles and evangelists, right? But to everyone who has loved his appearing. Hopefully that was the main application of this summer's series on the end times, the fact that Jesus is coming back. And you love that. You love the thought of that. You can't wait for that. You pray for that. You long for that. And so he says, hey, this doesn't just apply to me. Some of you have served as a pastor all my life. This applies to anyone who knows and loves Christ. Not long after Paul penned those parting words to Timothy, Nero finally put an end to his life by chopping off his head. So Paul paid the ultimate price for his faithfulness to Christ. But for Paul, 
preaching the gospel was more precious to him than preserving his own life. Can you say that? That preaching the gospel is more precious to you than preserving your own life? How does your life reflect that you understand what Paul understood, that the gospel is so great that no sacrifice is too great in order for everyone to hear it and believe it? Well, may God be gracious to us all as we seek to follow the example Paul set for us here in this passage. Let's pray. Father, this seems like a scary way to live and it requires great faith and so we pray that you would grant us the faith we need to remain faithful to the end. Lord, may your word accomplish its purposes in our heart, in our life. Lord, in the life of this church. Lord, that we might be all that you designed us to be and desire us to be, we pray for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.